0: Hello and welcome to another episode of The View from the Lab podcast. I'm your host Andy Woods. In today's episode I was lucky enough to catch up with educational researcher Alistair Moore who works at the University of York in the Science Education Group. He is one of the principal researchers on the Best Evidence Science Teaching Project, better known simply as BEST. This important project is making hundreds of research-informed diagnostic questions and follow-up activities freely available to teachers. And also spawn the ASC's free Best Steps resources. In our conversation, we delve into how projects such as BEST are transforming research evidence into free resources to help teachers develop research informed practices in their classrooms. I hope you find this episode informative and engaging, as it's now time to hear Alastair's view from the lab. Good afternoon, Alastair. Hi, Andy. Um, we're going to talk to you about loads of loads of interesting stuff but before we get started can you give us a brief bio about how you ended up working in educational research?
1: Uh, yeah of course, um, so yes the, the day job now is uh, is doing research into uh, how science education is, is done in schools, how science particularly biology in my case is, is taught and, and learned and assessed at school level um, but I didn't intend to do this, uh, this wasn't the original plan. Uh, I I did a degree in biology uh, and then a, a PhD in immunology. Wow! And that was that was lab based. You know that was that was lab based scientific research, and that was the plan. Uh, that, that was that was the original plan. My career was going to be uh, as a scientist, as a a lab based or, or field based, you know, doing doing scientific research. Yeah. Uh, but four years of doing that for my PhD was enough to put me off, <laughs> changed, my, changed my mind for, okay. for, but for what I might want to spend the rest of my life doing. Um, it, yeah, I, w- I was quite convinced that that I wasn't going to spend the rest of my life in the lab uh, after having done it for four years for my PhD. Um, so yeah, I kind of sidestepped into science education. Um, it's worth saying actually. I still consider myself a scientist, even though I'm not in the lab doing yeah. you know scientific research in the lab or in the field. Um, I still feel like I'm doing science. I still feel like I'm using my scientific knowledge. So I still feel like a scientist. That that, that that's an important thing to say. Um, but yes, yeah, so what I do now is is uh, I'm based at University of York and I'm doing uh, research into science education. Uh, Uh, I ended up, uh, how did I get here? Well, I I ended up doing um, a lot of work in assessment production with uh, the exam boards uh, and uh, curriculum development and resource development, um, including uh, in partnership with the folks at the University of York Science Education Group. So I had a taste of it um, as a a sort of volunteer, I suppose. And then um, we came to a point where the, the group at York were recruiting for a, a biologist to, to come and join them, so I, I applied and got the job and I've I've been there for eight years now do, doing this, um, uh, doing research at, uh, at the University of York into school science and absolutely love it, I have to say, really love it.
0: It sounds really interesting work. I mean, I know the University of York has got a really strong link to science education in general, Could you give me a brief history of the department and why it is that University of York has got this such strong link with science education? What's the the reason behind it?
1: Yeah, I can. So the the group that I work for is uh, University of York Science Education Group, or USEG for short. Uh, It's almost 40 years old now. Uh, It's it's part of the um, education department at York. And for almost all of those 40 years that the group has existed it has engaged in um uh, i I guess you would call it applied research but but we tend to say that it's it's research informed curriculum development so what what the group is doing is is a bit of research into science education a bit of uh, surveying research that other people have done and then trying to uh distill that trying to to transform it into um stuff frankly uh, resources and, and curricula and assessments that, that teachers can use in lessons. So that has been um, uh, a large part of the work of the group for 40 years. We also do initial teacher education, uh, so we train science, PGCEs uh, and, and, and so on. But that a large part of the work of the group has been this effort of, of trying to, to transform science education research into something, uh, courses and resources. Um, that teachers can use. And a lot of that work um, has been funded by the Salters Institute. They're an educational charity uh, based in London, and they've supported us for a long time. Uh, A lot of the work that we've done has been in partnership with them. And and so we're we're incredibly grateful to to that that very long standing and very productive uh, relationship that we've had with the Salters that has allowed us to to do this this kind of work. you know, ma- major pieces of work that have come out of the group are the Salters A-level courses. Um, they, at the time, they really pioneered uh, a sort of context-led approach to teaching science uh, that then, um, you know, spread around the world really and became quite commonplace. But at the time, that the, the Salters A-level courses for for um, physics and chemistry and, and biology were, were pioneering, um, and then also. Uh, uh, 21st century science for GCSE, which, uh, again, um, at the time pioneered, uh, or, or really kind of pioneered um, uh, forefronting the development of science literacy for, for children at GCSE level, as well as developing understanding of science, it was, it, it very much had a, an aim to um, develop children's science literacy. So again, that was quite pioneering at the time. Uh, so uh, that work continues um, and the, the projects that I now work on every day are, are, are very much have the same aim as that.
0: It's a really important work. I mean, what does a, a typical week look like for you? Because it's it's shrouded in mystery, the world of educational research. So in, in a typical week, what kind of things are you doing? Who are you talking to? Who are you working with in a, in a, in a kind of a typical week?
1: <laughs> well, you know, a typical week now is rather different to... <laughs> <laughs> a, ty- a typical week a year ago, or just over a year ago. A typical week now is I sit at home <laughs> all, all day, every day, like like many of us. Um, but no, I, I, seriously, I'm I'm still engaged in the same work as I would have been doing from my office. Um, there isn't a typical week, I suppose. But um, yeah, so the, the, this the the work that the group does, um, as I said, is is what we call research informed curriculum development. So. At any particular time, I'm probably working on one or two or perhaps three projects that have that aim. Um, so it, it involves a lot of um, surveying uh, and reviewing uh, existing research that has been done into science education at school level, doing um, you know systematic reviews of the literature, uh, the kind of stuff that teachers can't access um, because they don't have time because it's hidden behind paywalls uh, you know it's all in peer-reviewed journals and if if you don't work for a a university or some kind of institution that subscribes to those you can't get access to it so uh, i'm doing that i suppose on a teacher's behalf i'm getting access to that research that they probably don't have the time or the ability to to get at i'm reading it um, uh, distilling it down into Short summaries of the research, and then trying to build that up into resources that teachers can put into lessons. So it um, it can get very challenging. Uh, I, you know, in, in the past few years, I've I've been reviewing research on most of the topics that are taught in in biology between uh, ages eleven and sixteen. Um, reviewing the research for some of them, uh, evolution, for example, uh, and photosynthesis. Uh, so much has been published on those topics, you know, trying to review it all and condense it down into something almost finished me off. Um, <laughs> but but uh, so that's a lot of what I do it's reviewing existing research and then um, using it to, to write research informed resources that, that teachers can use. I, I do some um, uh, first hand research as well. I'm, I'm currently working on a um, a three-year research project uh, into practical work at GCSE level and practical assessment. So that has involved working with a number of schools across Yorkshire and London uh, to look at practical lessons. So I've gone in and, and, and done sort of lesson observations and, and teacher interviews. Um, so I, I'm doing a bit of that as well, uh, not 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 so much since COVID arrived. It's not been so easy to go into schools mm. and, and schools often haven't been open, but um, a little bit of that continues, uh, and that that will come back, of course, once uh, once we're free of COVID. Hopefully.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, it sounds interesting and a good variety of work. It leads me nicely on to um, a, a kind of project you you were uh, a key person in, which is the best the best evidence in science teaching. I hope I've got that acronym correct. Um, <laughs> could you tell me about that project and what its aims were at the beginning of, of the the project?
1: Yeah, so this is this is one of our big research informed curriculum developments projects it's uh it's been going on for about five years now it's still ongoing we, we've got some new funding to to extend the uh, the duration of that project so yes you're right it's called best evidence science teaching or best for short so it's a uh, it's a recursive acronym where the, the the first letter of the acronym is also the first word of the uh, the full title best for short cool. um, so that really uh, the the um The aim, the ethos of that project is um, trying to transform the best evidence that we can find from the science education research literature, uh, taking that, trying to transform it into resources that teachers can use and then making those resources uh, freely available to teachers. So this is um, a research project principally and a curriculum development project. It's not a commercial venture. We're not selling. Uh, the outputs of this. Um, we're not signed up with a commercial publisher. Uh, we, um, so we do the research work, we're, we're surveying um, the research literature pretty systematically for most of the topics that are taught in secondary science. Uh, and Then we're developing a series of resources um, based on what we've read in the research and then giving it all away for free. Um, we're able to do that because uh, Again, we're sponsored by the Salters Institute. So they have very generously paid for the research and development work. Um, And also now we're we're also uh, receiving some funding from the Institute of Physics, which is going to help us to to continue doing this work. So very grateful to the Salters and to the the IOP. And then we have a partnership with STEM Learning. So they host all of the resources that we're producing for Best Evidence Science Teaching. They host them uh, on our behalf um, on the STEM Learning website. So that's how we're able to, to give it all away um, completely for free. So it's a project that hasn't finished yet? You still you No, still it hasn't. Done. It hasn't finished yet. We, um, the first phase of the project was looking at um, secondary science at ages 11 to 14, uh, what we call Key Stage 3 in England. Um, that phase of the project has finished and we've published all of the resources for that phase. So that's the, the 11 to 14 age group. Um, it was really popular. It, it has been received really very well. So, um, uh, thankfully, we, we got a, an extension grant for another three years of work um, to extend the resource collection up to age 16. So, we're now covering the whole of the sort of five year secondary science curriculum. Um, and we are covering uh, what we would call key stage four in England it's that 14 to 16 um, uh, age bracket. But it's a, you know, it's a very um, labor-intensive process. Surveying the research literature for a particular topic and then turning it into uh, research-informed resources takes a long time. So um, uh, we started publishing the first topics for uh, age 14 to 16 this year. Um, But it will take us uh, the rest of this year and the rest of next year. So all the way up to the end of 2022, it will take us that long to get through all the remaining topics. So if anybody is um, frantically clicking refresh on the web pages and uh, is desperate for the resources to come. come out they they will, but it takes a while to do it you know to do it in a in a genuinely research informed way it does it does take a lot of work and a lot of time so so we will we will get there.
0: Yeah. and did your um do your findings from the initial work you've done does it suggest that you should Teach biology, chemistry, physics in a particular order to aid understanding. Um, have you kind of been prescriptive in that sense?
1: We haven't been prescriptive. We've we've produced some guidance on that. So there has been a lot of research done and a lot has been published um, on learning progressions. For example, on on um, effective sequencing of ideas in secondary science. Um, So we've surveyed that where we could get access to it. Um, And it does give us useful information about um, sequencing, about effective learning steps, about um, not necessarily linking particular topics strictly to particular ages or school years, but certainly in thinking that um, some topics really are prerequisites for others um, in terms of how does in terms of conceptual progression you know how does a student's understanding build up there are there's definitely a lot to be said about the order of particular ideas that will that will help to to foster um conceptual progression so we have we've surveyed the evidence where we could find it and we have published um as part of best evidence science teaching we've published um some guidance on that so we, what what we did pretty early on was um we try to identify what the big ideas of of secondary science education were. Now we looked at the work of Wynne Harlan and others who have have uh, put a lot of thought into what are the big ideas of, of secondary science education, um, and also um, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, the the AAAS, uh, have a very large uh, project called Project 2061. They've done a lot of work into um, sequencing of of, of ideas, and how we can build up understanding of, of of big ideas in science education. So we used that research to identify uh, 15 big ideas of, of secondary science education, um, and then we identified a series of, of teachable chunks um, that would help to build up those big ideas. You know the, the big ideas themselves are too big uh, to teach all in one go, you have to build up students understanding of them, a series of chunks. Now, what do you call those chunks? We've ended up calling them key concepts. Okay. so that's that's what we've done for best. We have a series of, of key concepts um, that build up understanding of, of 15 big ideas in, in Secretary Science. And so we have produced some maps that uh, suggest sequencing for the, the key concepts that will formal learning progression that helps to build up understanding of the big ideas, but it's not prescriptive. Um, If if a teacher is listening to this and wants to use some of the best evidence science teaching resources, they don't have to chuck out their existing scheme of work. Um, You know, they can dip into what we've produced, uh, they can drop it into their existing scheme of work, and then maybe over time, if they find that it's helpful, they can look at what we've they can look at the maps we've produced, uh, think about the, what we've um, advised in terms of sequencing. They know it's research informed, and so if they come to a point where they're doing a bit of redevelopment of their curriculum in school, um, you know they might then decide to incorporate some of some of the sequencing that we've suggested. Okay.
0: And have you been able to, because I know you're you know, obviously a science background, have you been able to, to kind of measure the impact of people applying these these best principles in schools? I know in schools it's always very difficult to get kind of concrete data about educational outcomes, but have you worked on that at all? Uh,
1: we have a little bit, yeah. So m- most of the funding we've had um, has gone towards the development work, the, the, develop- the research and the development of the resources, but we, we did have some funding to, to do a little evaluation. Um, The results of that evaluation were actually published in December in School Science Review, which is the ASE journal. Um, Although you don't have to be an ASE member if you want to go and read that paper, it's it's one of the open access papers um, for the December 2020 issue of School Science Review. So we we worked with a a series of schools across Yorkshire. Um, They were given some um, packages of our resources from Best Evidence Science Teaching. Uh, we just went in there um, really to see what happened. So we did some lesson observations and we did some teacher interviews. And we just wanted to know: what did you do? Um, did it change the planning for a particular lesson? Did it change what happened during the lesson? Um, what impacts did it have on the teacher's behavior, basically? Um, it's worth pointing out that all of our resources are, um, well, they have a they have a student facing sort of activity sheet, but they also have a set of teacher notes. So every single resource that we've produced has a set of teacher notes. And in those teacher notes, we um, have a section called What does the research say? And in there, it's just a paragraph or two that summarizes the research that underpins the resource. So it's it's clear um, how the research has informed what we've done in in the resource. And what we found was that those those summaries of, of the underpinning research um they were almost acting like miniature bite-sized episodes of CPD for the teachers so it, it it's a sort of it's a very quick bit of self-directed CPD it's easy to download it's free to access and it's just a couple of paragraphs to read in the teacher notes but it gives you an insight into the research it 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 gave the teachers something they wouldn't otherwise have known something they probably wouldn't even have been able to access because it would have been locked away in a a peer-reviewed journal that they they can't get access to. So it just gave them a little insight um, that was enough to to prompt them to make some small change in the lesson they were about to teach. So maybe they're teaching about forces or food chains or something and they read that little bit of, of the summary that we've written of the research and it just gets them to Maybe they just make a small change to the language that they're using during the lesson. Maybe they avoid a particular term, that the research indicates creates misconceptions. So they just make that tiny little change and it's potentially quite impactful. Um, we, we actually, um, uh, people listening to this will be familiar with the EEF report called Improving Secretary Science that came out a couple of years ago. In that report, there are seven main areas that they identify. They have this kind of rainbow coloured uh, chart of the seven main areas. And we we were able to, we use that as a, a sort of evaluation framework. So we, we went into lessons and we said, when teachers are using the best evidence science teaching resources, are there any changes in their pedagogy in each of those seven areas? And the answer was yes, we we, we could see changes in each of those seven areas that were identified in the EEF report. So if anybody wants to read that, it's uh, it's been published in the the December 2020 issue of a School Science Review.
0: Okay, and with your and this might be getting a bit grandly. When you were looking at your kind of the impact of um, these resources, did you did you kind of pick, say, I don't know, year nine class, and did one teacher use your resources and another teacher not use your resources? Uh, did you go into that kind of detail? Was it more? Was it not as uh, kind of uh, scrutinising as that, as it were?
1: Well, that's that's almost getting into RCT territory, isn't it? That's okay. almost that's almost getting into a sort of a a, a intervention group and a control group, uh, yeah. comparing. No, we we didn't we didn't. Well, to be honest, we didn't have the f- enough funding or enough time to do it in quite yeah. that much detail. Um, and we did. And similarly, we didn't really have enough funding or time to look at changes in student outcomes. Um, but you know, you can imagine a, a sort of domino effect that leads to changes in student outcomes. If you put an intervention into a class. Uh, the first domino that has to fall over is that the teacher has to change something, they have to just do something differently, um, and that may eventually lead to, you know, changes in student outcomes. So we were just looking at that first domino, do, you know, do, do the teachers do anything differently in their planning for a lesson and then in the lesson itself? Um, and the answer was yes, they do. It, you know, the, the, what we'd written up about the research and the approaches, that the research-informed approaches that we have exemplified in the in the activities, um, it was making a difference. The teachers were changing what they did in the lesson. Uh, so that that um, that is the first thing that needs to happen if you're if you're going to then see a bigger effect. Uh, and we you know we ha- we worked with a range of schools. They were sort of representative um, uh, uh, of the national picture on various measures, so you know socioeconomic measures and and so on and different types of schools. And we had a range of teachers of, of varying experience from um, some of our own trainees um, just going in to do their first placements uh, all the way up to um, teachers very experienced science teachers who had been teaching for like 37 years so we, we had you know we had a range of different school types and a range of, of, of different teacher experiences
0: okay um now part of the kind of the outcomes of the, of the best research was this idea of lots of diagnostic questions. Now, um, could you tell me, is there is there a way or are there principles in which teachers could kind of construct a really good diagnostic question They're looking at a particular topic, maybe it's one you haven't perhaps covered, are there things they can apply um, to a, a new topic or even apply to maybe a different subject perhaps? Um, what would you say to them in terms of developing those types of questions?
1: Yeah, so diagnostic questions are really at the heart of, of the best evidence science teaching collection. Uh, we've, we've produced hundreds and hundreds of them now. <laughs> uh, it's, it, so that diagnostic questions are short um, formative assessment items that you can use in a lesson. You know, you can use them at the start to to survey the students' preconceptions. What are they coming in with from, from primary school or from everyday life? Um, you can use them part way through a bit of teaching to, to, uh, to measure progress or you can use them at the end um, to get some evidence on whether the students really have got the idea that you, that, that, that you want them to get. Um, now we've produced a whole series of these um, for best evidence science teaching. They are based on research that there is an enormous body of research that's been published over the past sort of three or four decades on um, students' ideas in secretary science, common misconceptions, common preconceptions, the kinds of things that crop up again and again for particular topics in secretary science. So, we've used that in the construction of our diagnostic questions. And if a teacher is looking at writing their own diagnostic questions, I, I would recommend a similar approach. So, uh, a question will become properly diagnostic if it's providing the teacher with um, evidence about what the student is thinking, not just whether they know the right answer, but often much more importantly, what else are they thinking? What misconceptions have they got? What preconceptions have they got? Um, you know, everyday preconceptions and, and, and common misconceptions, they can form barriers to conceptual progression. So they can prevent a student from from um, getting to the kind of scientific understanding that we're trying to develop uh, with a piece of teaching. So misconceptions are hard to shift, but if you are going to do something about them, the first thing you have to do is to know that they are there. You have to know that a student has them. That's where a diagnostic question comes in. So when we write our diagnostic questions for best evidence science teaching, they're short, they're very focused on a, a particular idea. They're not trying to assess lots of different ideas at once. They're very highly focused. They're very often simple multiple choice questions. So a short question, four answer options. The student has to pick which answer they think is right or best. Um, And the key thing is that the incorrect options, the distractors as we call them, they are not just picked at random. They're not just things that are obviously wrong, they are based on common misconceptions that have been reported in the research. And that's when the question becomes really powerfully diagnostic, because it will give you a picture um, of who in the class has got which misconceptions. And of course, these kinds of questions are designed to be used formatively. So they're designed to give you some evidence that then helps you decide what to do next. So if you use a diagnostic question and it tells you that quite a few of the students in the class have got a common misconception then you 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 pivot you 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 change what you do next to address that that misconception before you move on so that's that's the idea it, if a teacher is wanting to write their own diagnostic questions it probably is quite hard for them to access um, research on on misconceptions that's been published in uh, you know peer reviewed journals and so on but um, uh, there are other places you can get information on common misconceptions. Um, Principal examiners' reports, for example, from GCSE papers, from A-level papers, that's a very rich source of of information on what students commonly get wrong and what misconceptions they have. Um, And various books have been published. Uh, uh, Some people listening to this will be familiar with Ros Driver and the work that that, that Ros and her colleagues did uh, back in the sort of late 80s and the 90s. and the book that they published called Making Sense of Secretary Science, I think it was published in 1995, is a very rich um, source of information on, on common misconceptions. Okay, and Of, slight of slight course yeah, we're, we're now um, we're publishing our own work through best evidence science teaching, it's all online open access, completely free, and again that is now becoming um, a very rich source of, of um, information on common misconceptions, so that's another place to look.
0: So really kind of in terms of the diagnostic questions, I guess it's the the, the aim is, is to have those metacognitive talks, I guess, with, with with students. Is that the I mean is that the most powerful way to use them? Well,
1: this this is the issue, this is the issue of what do you do next. So after you've after you've used a diagnostic question with a class, it will give you some evidence on what they're thinking. Um, if it's a if it's a good diagnostic question, it will have given you evidence um, of who in the class has 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 common misconceptions. So, yeah, the idea is that you use that formatively to decide what do you do next. So um, a good way to proceed then is to challenge the student's thinking. So if you know that they've got particular misconceptions that maybe are going to be barriers to them uh, you know, progressing towards the kind of scientific understanding that we want them to have, if you know they've got those misconceptions, challenge them. And a good way to do that is through metacognition. Um, a lot has been said in recent years about metacognition. Essentially it means um, getting the students to think about what they're thinking. So you can do that through uh, discussion, either teacher-led discussion or small group discussion. Um, get them to think about their own answers to a diagnostic question. Get them to think about their peers' answers and to talk about it. So they're not just taking for granted what they what they thought the answer was, they're actually sort of critically evaluating what they thought it was and what the teacher said the right answer was and what other people thought the answer was. So you have this kind of social construction of understanding there and there's, there's a, a bit of meaning making that goes on um, when you get uh, students, particularly in small groups, to think or, or to 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 engage in some metacognition and to talk and think about what they're thinking. So, um, yes, so in best evidence science teaching, we have paired up our diagnostic questions with what we're calling response activities. Um, These uh, are based on research where we can find it. uh, Often the research will describe certain things you could do to help challenge students thinking and, and move them on from a preconception to a to a scientific understanding. So where we could find that, we've turned it into these response activities and uh, a great many of those um, are trying to to encourage metacognition and getting the students to to think about what they're thinking, challenging that and and engaging in a bit of meaning making.
0: Moving on to the ASE, they were inspired to research and use your resources and take the ideas further. What did they do
1: with the, the best ideas? ASE have been tremendously supportive of best evidence science teaching right from the start. They, they they've, uh, I think they recognised pretty early that it was, um, you know, a, a good project. that it was trying to do good things, and that could be very helpful to teachers. So yeah, ASE have been tremendously supportive. Um, last year, when COVID arrived and we had the first set of school closures, uh, ASC came up with the idea of developing something which eventually became what they call best steps so uh, they recognized quite rightly that students who uh, had been um, homeschooled for up to five months um, would be going back into classes and teachers would have a bit of quite a bit of work to do in, in just finding out where those students were in their understanding um, how much progress had they made during that that long period of school closure? Um, what misconceptions might they have picked up that that a teacher would have to address in trying to get them back onto um, back on track, back onto the spec, and and ready for GCSE exams? So it, ASE said, well, we can use some of the existing best resources to help here. So um, what they did was they picked uh, 24 topics from GCSE science. So eight in each of biology, chemistry, and physics. And they put together a series of these resources called best steps. And so they show for for each of those 24 topics, they they pick out a couple of resources from the best evidence science teaching collection that show how you can introduce a key idea and then how you can uh, sort of test and consolidate the student's understanding, and then how you can get them ready for uh, the type of question that they could face um, in a GCSE paper. So when you open up one of these best steps resources, you'll see little images of a couple of uh, resources from best, and then a, a, a question taken from a real uh, GCSE paper. So it's just it's just about um, uh, helping teachers to focus on some key topics. And 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 getting these students ready, these students who have been so disadvantaged by everything that's happened during COVID, just getting them ready to to face the kinds of questions they're going to see in their GCSEs.
0: And do you think there's a as a role for edtech or so ed technology, to maybe take some of these diagnostic questions and maybe feed into tasks that students may have difficulty? Where do you think that that stands? Have you heard of any kind of um or, or think about some, maybe some applications in the future? There, but you may be able to use these diagnostic. Um, questions in a different way.
1: Yeah, this that, is something we, we've been asked about in various different ways um, ever since we started publishing our, our resources. So we have we have developed this enormous bank of diagnostic questions and uh, response activities that help you to kind of respond to what the, the diagnostic questions show. Um, but they're all just uh, Word documents and PowerPoint files. So it's it's quite basic stuff. And what we haven't got is a platform that does data analysis or that allows you to compile quizzes or or integrates with an app uh, or any of that kind of stuff. You know, we are not um, technology developers. We're not coders. We haven't got the the skill or the personnel or the time or the the grant uh, to do any of that. Uh, The grant that we got was all about the development work. So it was about surveying the research and and writing high quality diagnostic questions so that's what we've done there are loads of ways that they could be developed um, into flashy platforms that would do all sorts of useful things and we'd love to do that but it's it's that's you know that's i think that's for the future for us to uh to work out whether any of that's possible and at the moment all we can do is um is to use this sort of research and development grant that we've got to to carry on surveying the research uh, for for topics in secretary of science and just writing writing high quality questions. Um, I you know I've been to um, there's a big uh, education technology trade show called BET. Uh, some of the people listening to this might be familiar with it, um, and I've gone there and I've seen uh, you know platforms uh, that offer diagnostic questioning and, and and that kind of thing, and they. My, my opinion of those was that, that, that the technology and the platform was very well developed and perhaps the content wasn't quite so so great uh we have we we we, we have the opposite thing we, we have some high quality research informed content but we don't have a, a flashy technology platform uh to host it so okay. maybe so in the future there's maybe some opportunities f- there in the future definitely yes yes course, yeah. of course.
0: Um, so, um, thinking about um, your your role, your 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 uh, research in science education, you must have read some excellent books on science education generally. Are there any you could you could pick out that you would say that, uh, that are definitely worth the read if you're a science teacher or just in that space that have really had an impact on you? Um, what would you recommend to people?
1: Oh yeah, there's a few. I mean, there's some that books that that probably a lot of the people listening to this will be familiar with, but they they really kind of. Had a big impact on the work that I've been doing for the past sort of eight and nine years up at York. Um, one of them is, is the book that Ros Driver and her colleagues uh, put together based on their really extensive research into um, misconceptions and, and students' understanding uh, in science. So that that book is called Making Sense of Secretary Science um, by Rosalind Driver and colleagues came out in 94. $95, I think, yeah. and it's kind of a it, it's a bit of a bible for misconceptions in Secretary Science. Well, except that um, you know it's now 25 years old and I think w- what we've done um, with the BEST project is is almost like an update of that book. We, we've surveyed all the research that's been published since then and um, we've written it up into teacher notes that we're publishing online with, with accompanying resources um, so I like to think we, we've almost uh, done a bit of an update um, to that work and an, an update to that book. In fact, I, I presented about best um, at ASE annual conference a couple of years ago. And at the end of the presentation, um, a lady came up to me and introduced herself as uh, Valerie Wood Robinson, who is one of Ross Driver's colleagues and one of the co-authors on that book. Um, and she, she said how nice it was to see that somebody you know 25 years later had was continuing that work in such a comprehensive way and a systematic way and, and was was once again getting that research disseminated out in a form that teachers could could pick up and, and have easy access to so that that was very gratifying to for valerie to say that yeah of course of course um, and then there, there's a few others that, that folks will have heard of um the work that john hattie did uh his sort of metro analysis um quite famously, and he published uh, Visible Learning, a series of books called Visible Learning. Um, And there's a a, a lovely bit in in there where he talks about the the importance of feedback and particularly the feedback from student to teacher. And that's what diagnostic questions do. They allow for feedback from the student to the teacher. So that that was a sort of a a guiding principle of of what we've done with, with best evidence science teaching. And then, it, um, you know, the diagnostic questions that we've produced are, are formative assessment items, or at least they, they are they are assessment items that are intended to be used formatively. Um, so, uh, you know, we're inspired by um, Inside the Black Box, uh, which was published by Paul Black and Dylan William. Um, and then uh, Dylan William's later book called Embedded Formative Assessment, that, that's, uh, you know, another important um, read if if one is interested in formative assessment and the theory of of using it uh, effectively. Uh, In in that later book by Dylan Williams, uh, Embedded Formative Assessment, there is a quote where he says that sharing high quality questions is a really important thing to do. So again, that is something that the Best Evidence Science Teaching Project is trying to do. We're trying to create high quality questions based on research and then share them. Uh, make you know make them freely uh, and widely available to teachers uh so that you know that those were some of the the books that really had a, a big impact on uh, the work that i've done
0: and kind of think a bit wider than that you know i know you're a big fan of biology is there any yeah. any popular science book that you've read in the past that you've really thought that was one of the the best obviously not um you know the most inspirational book is there anything that kind of stands out in, in that kind of space uh, that you'd recommend to the listeners
1: Oh, absolutely! The, the the book that I always say had the biggest impact on my uh, life and my career. The, the the book that made me decide I definitely wanted to be a biologist. Um, it's uh, called Microcosmos. It's by Lynn Margulis, who was ah an evolutionary biologist. She she spent her life um, uh, promoting the theory of um, serial endosymbiosis. So this was this was the idea that that evolution sometimes proceeds by symbiosis. And she uh, was a proponent of the theory that certain parts of cells, um, such as uh, 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 chloroplasts and so on, may have once been separate free living cells that that entered bigger cells and were taken up by symbiosis. And that became a sort of permanent, uh, uh, permanent arrangement. So that evolutionary step was not one that happened by mutation, it happened by symbiosis. But the um, that book starts by describing the early earth and the sort of primordial soup of organic compounds that existed and how those, those first uh, instances of organic compounds organizing themselves into self-replicating vesicles and how this could have led to the first cells and how this could have led to life forming on earth. And it was extraordinary. It was just... It was the most incredible, mind-blowing thing I'd ever read. And I read this um, as a lower sixth former um, and it just uh, it blew my mind. It it was just the most engaging and interesting and mind-blowing thing I'd ever read. And um, I thought, yes, I'm going to be a biologist now.
0: (laughs) A A good inspiration, definitely um we're coming to the end of the podcast now and no pun intended i wish you the best of luck with all your research as oh, you thank you. um and uh, we'll definitely look out for all the things coming out of the university of york and your partnerships with stem really enjoyed our conversation today thank you Alistair. thank you for joining me on the view from the lab podcast
1: thank you andy it was a pleasure
0: Thanks again for listening to this episode of the View from the Lab podcast. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Alastair today. If you're a teacher, I would recommend you check out both the Best Steps Research on the STEM website and also look at ASE's Best Steps resources. There are some great resources there to help identify your students' misconceptions in science. Pearson also has its own mastery pathways at GCC Science, which are well worth a look if you're planning your new curriculum. Head over to Edexcel's GCC Science page if you want to find out more. If you want to share your view from the lab, feel free to get in touch with me and send me an email at andy.woods at pearson.com. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you on the next one.